from Hyde Park United Methodist Church in Tampa, Florida. This is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm Monica Largess, your host today. On this week's episode, Matt and I virtually meet up with the Colorado native, the Reverend Dr. Chris Holmes. Chris has a PhD from Candler School of Theology. Currently, he is the scholar-in-residence at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. He also partners with Brennan Breed, who you may remember from the episode 32 on Daniel, in the project called Office Hours, which is a pop-up virtual Bible study with experts in the field. They have a Facebook page, or you can find them at firstpresatl.org slash office hyphen hours, but the link's also in the show notes. This discussion covers four books attributed to Paul in the New Testament, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We talk about the purpose of the letters, as well as the audience and the changes over time in Paul's message to the different urban centers. Now, on to the episode. All right, well, Chris, uh, we're just going to jump right in, and um, I want to talk about the book of, or the letter to the Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and just situate us with it. Um, where does this fit in the timeline of Paul's ministry, if we can ascertain that? So that's, I mean, it's a good question. The Anybody that has spent any time doing academic uh, Pauline studies knows that the question of Pauline biography, of trying to figure out uh, his life is complicated and depending on who you ask, uh, like an impossibly fraught problem. And so we look for certain clues. Um, The first clue in Philippians is that Paul mentions his imprisonment. So we know that Paul is writing from prison, but it's difficult to know um, how, however, what, what, what period of imprisonment was he writing? There were uh, at least a few times in his life when he was in prison. Um, and so uh, really, I think when it comes to dating Philippians, people will either go m- move towards an earlier date in the early 50s um, or a later date closer to his uh, his uh, assumed death. And I think if, if I was to sort of go out on a limb with this, I would say it's probably later. We, we see um, in this in this place that Paul is is mentioning uh, things like he wants to depart and be with Christ. I see. So you see language of someone who's sort of getting towards the twilight of their career. And so, yeah. okay. Yeah. 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 Um, what issues is Paul combating in the book of Philippians or dealing with addressing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Paul, you know, when we read Paul's letters, if we read something like Galatians or first Corinthians, it, it's, it's, you can't even like avoid the problems that he's mm-hmm. dealing with. They're very clear. I think things are a little bit more subtle in Philippians. Um, there are maybe some problems that he's addressing, but really the priority in Philippians is, is actually, it's a letter of Thanksgiving. It's a friendship letter. And so rather than being a, you know, primarily motivated by a bad report, it's motivated by a sense of gratitude and uh, a sense of deep affection for this community. Uh, some have described Philippians as the thankless thank you, because <laughs> Paul, you know, sort of keeps gesturing towards his gratitude, but it's not until the end in chapter four that he finally says, oh yeah, you gave me some money. I'm grateful for it. Cool, cool. See you later. <laughs> um, and and so I don't think that that's entirely fair. Um, but what is clear throughout the letter is that Paul has a deep connection with the Christians in Philippi. Um, they were they were very early in his his financial support um, and have been sort of steadfast even through uh, what we can what we can gather were hard financial times. Um, 
they were his partners in ministry, um, and he's super grateful for their emissary, Epaphroditus, who's mentioned in chapter two, who they sent from Philippi to be with him wherever he is. Um, and Epaphroditus got got really sick uh, when he was with Paul, and the Philippians even maybe were afraid that he had died. And so, um, so there's this deep connection. But there are, as I mentioned earlier, some questions or some issues that arise in the in the Philippian community. And for for clarity, I think we can talk about, you know, problems from the outside and problems from the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Corinthians is a great example of problems from the inside. And Galatians is a great example of problems from the outside. And so in Philippians, the outsiders are there's there's mention of these rival ministers in chapter one who apparently are preaching the gospel in order to make Paul's suffering in prison worse. We don't we don't mm. really know what that means, um, other than that Paul's conclusion is as long as they preach Christ, I'm all for it. Um, um, maybe they were preaching something you know that Paul didn't like, or maybe they were who knows. But but that's an outsider problem. The more probably persistent or at least more described problem is in chapter three, where Paul talks about um, folks who he names dogs and evil workers um, and has some very uh, forceful language here. and, and he talks about uh, circumcision and being the true circumcision, which has suggested to some interpreters that maybe he's dealing with some of the same issues that he was dealing with in Galatia. But one New, New Testament scholar, uh, Joette Basler, has suggested that maybe these opponents mentioned in Philippians 3 are more of imaginary opponents than actual like life on the ground opponents. It's almost as though they are like a a hypothetical threat to the Philippians. Um, And in terms of an argument, uh, they really are the opposite of the sort of model that he wants to hold up elsewhere in the letter. Sort of like if you have this idea rooted for Paul in this idea that the mind of Christ is uh, is one of like selfless living, not thinking highly of yourself. He sort right. of lays that out, lays it on himself in chapter three, and then in chapter four kind of drives it home with, hey, here's an example in your own community of where yeah. this mindset could really make a difference. Yeah, that's right. All right, so let's move to Colossians. And pretty, I mean, yeah. similar questions to what I asked you on Philippians. Where do we place this on the timeline? I realize that you said earlier that might be a, a fruitless effort, but maybe you also mentioned we can cluster it with some other letters. Yeah. Uh, let's just go over that again. Um, and yeah. then what are the issues at stake in Colossians? The letter of Colossians suggests that like Romans, this is not a, a community that Paul founded. Um, he's writing to a community he's never met. He apparently has a relationship with Epaphras, who maybe was the founder of the community. Um, but but so we don't we can't really try to correspond it with anything else, like maybe in Acts or in his other letters about when he was there to found that church. So it's more it's much more complicated. Um, but the the grouping of these letters is super fascinating, and there is this interesting three way relationship between. Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, and it's in um, in the place that most Christians skip. You know, as soon as you see Paul start naming names, you're like, "Oh, I'm done with this." <laughs> you know, so most people don't read Romans 16 at all. They're like, "Oh, all of these names I can't pronounce. Never going to read it." <laughs> uh, yes, but 
there's some really, really interesting names that get dropped in these three letters. Um, so we learn about uh, a person named uh, Tychicus in Colossians 4 and Ephesians 6. We learn about Onesimus in Colossians 4, 8. And it's it's possible that this is the very same Onesimus that the letter of Philemon is dealing with, the whole letter as a whole. Um we learn about Luke in in Colossians four, in Philemon twenty four, and then again in Second Timothy, um, Archippus in Colossians and Philemon, and so there are these really interesting connections of names of people, um, uh, companions and, and coworkers of Paul in these letters. It's also important to note that Colossians and Philemon are both co-authored with Timothy, which again mm. suggests again maybe. Uh, that they are originating at the same time. Now, when it comes to um, the issues that that Paul is talking about, it, it again, it's one of those places where we wish that Paul could be a little bit more clear. Like, man, you talk a lot about circumcision in Galatians, and that only concerns half the population. And you know, in contemporary American society, is a non-issue. Um, uh, but there is what some scholars refer to as the Colossian controversy, uh, and it, we see this most clearly in chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. But again, this is a place where it's it's unclear what the real problem is or what, what the concern is. It seems that um, it might have something to do with the veneration of astral and star deities. It might have some form of religious practice because he uh, seems to be gesturing in that direction. Um, it, it might, I think at the end of the day, it has a lot to do with circumcision insofar as, uh, again, if we think about the ancient Mediterranean world as being agonistic, as being mm -hmm. competitive, they were, they were also competitive with religious practices and religious initiations. And so um, it, it was, it was an, a way to, it seems like it was a way to advance in the, in the process. One more, ladder, one more rung in the ladder of initiation. So, you know, baptism was great. But, you know, if you're a real Christian or if you want to have a real religious experience, like you're going to only eat lettuce or you're yeah. going to, you know, uh, wear your left shoe on your right foot or, you know, you're, you know, whatever. And so there is this plus one mentality that is sort of behind the scenes in Colossians 2. And Paul's response seems to be, you don't need anything else, right? You, th this is, you don't need um, a plus one. There is no plus one if the supremacy is in Christ. And if, um, if sp spiritual maturity is putting on Christ Jesus instead of doing these other sort of rituals or these add-ons. Do some scholars speculate that there were odd sects of sort of Christianity or Christ followers or followers of Christ that were sort of rising up? For for contemporary Christians, like it's important for us to remember that that for much much of the religious world of antiquity and even a lot in modernity, um, it's it's polytheistic or syncretistic, mm -hmm. right? There's there's we are, you know, Protestant Christians are very concerned about making sure that we have the pure version of Christianity. I think in the ancient world, things were muddier. The degree to which even something as clear as meat sacrifice to idols in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, um, 
Paul walks a very fine line in that of, you know, yeah, like idols aren't real, but some people might think that this meat offered to them is really significant. And so Christianity was probably far more diverse than we we imagine in, in the first century. There were so little controls on the growth of early Christianity that a lot of the letters, and we see it in, in literature outside of the New Testament, is, is really written to sort of help cl- clarify or correct um, some of this explosive growth of early Christianity. Okay, so we have First and Second Thessalonians, and they have something in common here with the city of Thessaloniki. Could you tell us a bit about the city itself? It's a port city on the northern shore of the Aegean Sea. Uh, in 148 BCE, it was made the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And so even though Rome uh, was Latin speaking, they, they sort of allowed, as was their practice, a lot of the Greek speaking realities to continue. Um, uh, so it probably was a Greek speaking place, although there was a Roman presence. It seems like there was always, there, there had been a history of there being a, a Roman military presence there, uh, which could be significant. Um, It was a cosmopolitan population, had a thriving cultural center and a strong Jewish community, Um, likely had a strong presence of the the imperial cult, the religious traditions uh, related to venerating the the emperor in the first century CE. Um, And so the way for those that that know Georgia, you know, I would think of Thessalonica as more Atlanta than Macon. Yeah, Thessalonica... uh, was located on a major trade route, um, prosperous, you know, to a degree, um, probably because of the military presence had some of the uh, status issues that we see in other letters of Paul yeah. where, you know, people are fighting for citizenship or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, sounds like a very diverse population um, yeah. and transitory too, with a trade route. Uh, right. So in chapter two, verse 17, we have mention of a painful separation. What is, what is happening there? Yeah, I. this is, again, one of those places where we have to take some liberties as interpreters and do our best to read the text and maybe read a little bit behind the text to figure out what's going on. You know, the, the biggest thing that's clear is that Paul misses this community. Um, and although in antiquity, letter writing was viewed as, you know, a, a, a pretty worthy substitute of physical presence. Paul um, is expressing this great desire to be in their presence again, really this uh, opportunity to be with them. He founded this community and that seems to be really important to him. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he says, the reason that I haven't been able to come is because of the the workings of Satan, you know, for somehow his passage to Thessalonica has been blocked or prevented because of Satan. Now, again, what does this mean exactly? I I don't think it means that there's, you know, a red figure with a pitchfork and a tail, like standing in front of Paul saying, you cannot pass. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think um, that he is doing some theological interpretation and that he perceives that it would be God's will for him to go to Thessalonica and that he's been prevented from doing so. And his his explanation is sort of, well, Satan's not allowing me to go there. So just simply, it's painful because he cares. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there, I, I think a lot of people enjoy reading Pauline letters because there's a lot of encouragement. Um, and that's definitely true in First Thessalonians. There's a lot of encouragement. We get phrases like steadfast hope, mutual love, a lot of familial language. Um, Paul refers to himself 
as a nurse, could you give us some some idea of why he would use that term? Yeah, so I think in general in early Christianity, this was one of the things that non-Christians like to like attack Christians about mm-hmm. uh, is the idea of, of a fictive kinship, mm-hmm. fictive kinship relationships where uh, people who are not related by blood talk about each other as siblings, or as you said, he likens himself to their father as well as to their to their mother or their or their nurse. Um, and I think, you know, in addition to just sort of underscoring just how affectionate Paul can be and how deeply he cares for these communities, um, it's also really interesting to think that Paul, of all of the images that he could draw on from the ancient world, uh, from, you know, literary or, or philosophical ideas, that, that he would refer to himself as a nursing mother of this community is something that should cause us to pause uh, one of my teachers at seminary, Beverly Gaventa, has written a book called Our Mother St. Paul. And, uh, and she really talks about this passage in, in, in Thessalonians, but other parts of Paul's letters where um, perhaps Paul isn't as much of a misogynist as mm. many contemporaries interpret him to be. Uh, maybe he's more complicated. We have Paul writing, because he couldn't be there, he thinks of them quite as family. He is their father and their nurse. Um, how does that help us understand the purpose of the letter? He's, he's pushing them uh, to, to sort of grow uh, into their faith, uh, to live in a particular way. Um, he's, he's expecting them to, you know, continue doing what they've done in the past, but to, to, to do so even if there are challenges that they're facing. All of this has suggested to scholars that Paul is is engaging in a form of paranesis, which is just a fancy word for moral exhortation. And um, paranetic literature of the time was was employed the same sort of strategies of of giving people appealing to memory, appealing to models, and making strong statements, maxims about the good life or the bad life. You know, yes. do this, don't do that. Continue in this way, don't do that. Um, and so uh, I, I think all of them are meant to sort of remind the Thessalonians of what really matters. And, you know, ultimately, I don't know if it's fair to like take a single verse from first Thessalonians and say, this is what the purpose is. Um, but in two twelve, he talks about living a life worthy of God. And that seems to be, if there was a verse, if there was like a single statement, that seems to be, um, what this letter is about. Yeah. Well, great. So moving on to Second Thessalonians, um, it also seems like there's a lot of encouragement happening here, but it has a different feel. Was the church going through something different at this point? Yeah. So I'm going to answer the question by affirming what you said about the different feel um, <laughs> before doing the second question okay. um, or the okay. second part of the question. Second Thessalonians is, you know, at, at one time, both oddly familiar and oddly distinct from first Thessalonians. Like when I teach in a seminary setting, you know, I, I talk about second Thessalonians as a cover song for first Thessalonians, you know, the, 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 the chorus is the same, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of similarities um, between the topics that the two letters t- deal with uh, as well as the structure, but you know, they sound different. Mm. The tone is different. Um, Paul's language is is a little harsher and a little less affectionate in Second Thessalonians. Although there's still the bit about um, his, his, you know, his his relationship to them. Yeah. And finally, 
again, both of them sort of reflect on the end times or, you know, what happens after you die or the coming of the Lord, these sort of topics. But again, they do so, I think, in different ways. Um, we get a much more developed sort of timeline in Second Thessalonians than we do in First Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. Well, in chapter two, um, for most of the chapter, all of it maybe, there's a lot of talk about the apocalypse. And it seems like some of the people there may even be a little enthusiastic about it happening. Um, could you explain what they were expecting and when? It, it seems like Paul is addressing a rumor that the day of the Lord has already occurred. Um, and this was the view that um, we see in the Gospels, we see in some of other Paul's other letters that that it wasn't just that Jesus was going to be raised, that's great, but that Jesus was going to come back um, and sort of set the world aright. That was the expectation. And we know from other letters of Paul that Paul thought that was definitely going to happen before he died. Like he was convinced it was going to happen. Even in First Thessalonians, he mentions the idea that that it will happen before some of us die. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so, so it th- this idea, this rumor may have been um, – the, you know, sort of the idea that the day of the Lord was really not important. We see this in First Corinthians, where people think that because they have the Spirit and the cross and the resurrection happen, that that's all that matters. That's the end of the story. We're just going to go on living until this this mortal body falls apart, and then we'll just be a spirit. Um, and Paul seems to be correcting that in in First Corinthians. Um, and so maybe th- there's similar thought that that the day of the Lord, you know, has occurred in the sense that it's it, it occurred when Christ was re- resurrected from the dead. Um, or it may be that people were looking around at the events around them and like the Jewish war with Rome and saying, surely this is the day of the Lord. You know, the rumors of war, they've, they've happened. Jesus is coming or he already came. And so maybe it, maybe it's either more of a sort of a religious or a theological rumor that they're abiding by, or maybe it's geopolitical and they're just noticing the events around them and are saying, this is it. This is the end of the world. Let's, you know, pack our bags or, or whatever they would say. Hmm. Yeah. So as they're looking around, expecting the world to end because it feels like it is maybe, um, right. what does Paul advise them to do then? Yeah. So he, again, I love comparing the letters of Paul because for second Thessalonians is almost the polar opposite response to the one that we see in first Corinthians In first Corinthians, Paul says, you know, you, you're engaged. I know, I know you want to go on your honeymoon and do all that stuff, but really like being married kind of sucks. And Jesus is about to return anyways. And so like, why bother with having to worry about another human being when all you could worry about is Jesus, like, just be like me. Um, and so, Paul's urgency that Christ is going to come back in his lifetime seems to suggest in 1 Corinthians, Mm -hmm. like, don't worry about life as normal. Don't worry about getting married. He says to slaves, you know, if you get the opportunity to be free, great, but like, don't fight for it because, you know, the end is almost here. And so 1 Corinthians almost suggests this sort of like disengagement um, from normal life uh, because Christ's return seems so clear. And it's almost like the the readers of Second Thessalonians like heard that and then ratcheted up. And they're like, yeah, you're right. We're going to disengage from life and we're not going to work anymore. And we're, you know, we're not going to tend to our houses anymore. And great, like these other poor schmoes who are working, they should probably support us. They should probably give us free stuff. And so it seems as though 
you know, the end of Second Thessalonians is all about idleness. And it seems to be that there is a connection between this sort of idle waiting on the Lord um, uh, that, that Paul kind of encourages in his letter to the first, uh, first Corinthians. And in Second Thessalonians, it's a stronger response. What a great discussion with the Reverend Dr. Holmes for this week's podcast. If you want to hear more from our conversation, be sure to join our Bible Project 2020 group on Facebook. We have a bonus episode coming up, diving a little deeper into some of the interesting points of these letters. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org live. Thank you, Matt Hotho, for hosting with me this week. I produced and edited this episode. I'm Monica Largesse. See you next week. Mm-hmm.